Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fuganaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. Whether you're listening to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or watching us on YouTube, if you enjoy the show and have a second, please give us a thumbs up, five stars, or a nice review. It really does help and we appreciate it. Uh, And for the extended conversation with our guests, be sure to check out our after show chat on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash scriptsandscribes. And today on the show, our guest is an award-winning TV writer and producer whose credits include Two Broke Girls, Mad Love, and the popular and highly acclaimed Canadian series, Corner Gas, for which he inexplicably earned both a Canadian Comedy Award and a Writers Guild of Canada Award for Best Drama Series. He's also written comedy specials for Jeff Goldblum, Jane Krakowski, and Seth Rogen. He is Mr. Rob Sheridan. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Uh, after the snafu we just had, which we won't really talk about, I appreciate you uh, sticking around. <laughs> um, and I, we always start off the podcast with uh, how you got your start in the business and uh, what, what inspired you to want to work in, in the industry. So as you pointed out, I'm a Canadian. I spent uh, most of my life in uh, Scarborough, which is a, uh, a suburb of Toronto. And um, I, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I grew up there, uh, always kind of knowing that I wanted to do something in, you know, show business, but not really knowing what that was. I think initially I thought that was going to be radio or something. And in fact, you have a great voice. Uh, well, thank you. I, 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 and I used to do voice, you know, non-union voiceover work and stuff when I was in Toronto, but I, I, I never really went down that path seriously. But I had... Uh, when I was in high school, I had a little cable, a little uh, a, a public access, you know, Channel 10, sort of Wayne's World, not Wayne's World, but um, uh, like a little movie review show. And I, so I, I knew, I always knew that I kind of wanted to be into movies and stuff. And I really thought that that was where it was going to go, criticism or commentary or something. Uh, that was really a, kind of the peak of, you know, Siskel and Ebert and all that stuff. And I really thought, I think I thought I was going to be maybe one of those guys. But the guy I was doing the show with, who I think was smart enough to kind of take me under his wing or nice enough to take me under his wing, said, well, you don't want to just talk about this stuff. You want to do it. And I was like, well, I guess he's right. I'm still not sure he was right. But <laughs> I, I, anyway, so I went through film school, uh, York University in Toronto, primarily as a writer. I, I did do some production, but I realized very quickly, you know, when you're in film school in Toronto, if you're making something, you're probably out in the cold in the middle of winter uh, because that's when the films get shot. And I just thought, oh, this sucks. So I, I kind of ran back to my office and realized that I did like uh, I did like the writing part of it. And then I got out of school in sort of the early 90s and I didn't write for years. And I became a publicist with a with a big theater company in Toronto, which uh, later went belly up in a in just a flames of the scandal and bankruptcy <laughs> well we'll have to get uh, into that that's interesting talk about that uh, yeah that was a, my first terrible boss um and then uh i in around 2000 2001 so norman jewison who you may know mm-hmm. uh to to the to folks who don't very uh, uh, prolific canadian director of all kinds of genres moonstruck being the most uh sort of famous movie with sharon and nick cage but uh, you know, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, Agnes of God. Um, uh, I'm going to forget. A thou- oh, Cincinnati Kid, by the way, which is terrific. Mm-hmm. With a, It's a poker movie with uh, Steve McQueen and about 100 others that I've not remembered. He started uh, something called the Canadian Film Center in Toronto, which is a small sort of cottagey sort of place just in the sort of north of the city a little bit. 
Um, and, you know, we sort of called it Canada's AFI. I mean, it's, it's really very small. But I went there and I did a, a few months, just a few months, uh, in kind of um, sort of a TV writing boot camp. And that was where, you know, here I was, I was almost 30 and I, well, I was 30 and I hadn't, you know, having lost touch with most of the folks that I'd gone to, uh, to undergrad, you know, to, to college with, I really didn't know that many people in, in, in the industry and I didn't know any writers, you know, so it was, it was really kind of starting over a little bit to sort of go, okay, can I really, can I take one more crack at this? And I found that I was pretty good at it. I had a couple of specs going in there. I'd written after the theater job had ended, uh, I had a couple of desk drawer specs. The first one was a Frasier, which was mm. uh, a big hot TV show at the time. <laughs> and uh, and then the other was a Just Shoot Me, also a big hot TV show at the time, maybe slightly less so. But it was it was I did two different tones. Let's see if I could do this, and they they came out okay, and uh, enough to get me into that. And then I met writers and did some stuff, and then out of that, I got my first job. Um, and then about 10, and then just to, to give you the real bullet points and you can ask me whatever you want, but I, then it was like basically 10 years working in Canada on a number of, uh, shows and then came down here around, uh, all just about exactly 10 years ago, actually in the summer of 2010. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I've been here ever since. And then the apocalypse happened and now I'm stuck. <laughs> yeah. Now you can't go back to Canada, even if you wanted to, because no, the border's no, closed. I, I'm here with my girlfriend who's American. Uh, and uh, shy of um, uh, getting married immediately, which uh, I've done that once. I don't think I'll, I'll wait. Um, I, I think uh, we're yeah we're here for a while. But I, I mean we're we're very fortunate. I'm here in the in the sunny San Fernando Valley and got some space to knock around, mm -hmm. and I've been very fortunate. But yeah, it's a stressful time, obviously. How are you guys handling the uh, pandemic? Uh, it's not really technically as much of a quarantine as it was at the beginning, but still people you know, are definitely we isolated. Like oh yeah. We, we have very, we have, we have varied our sort of guidelines or whatever you want to call them uh, of behavior. Um, very little since March. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I don't trust this thing. Also, you know, I, I'm a, I'm, I'm crowding 50. I'm not quite there, but I'm getting very close and I shaved my head a few days ago. So it looks like I'm getting even closer. Um, but I, I, I worry, you know, it's, it's scary. I smoked for half of my mm. life. Uh, you know, I, I, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a scary thing. And I, you know, the writer's imagination, it doesn't take long to go to, Oh my God, I'm in a hospital bed. I'm in a, I'm stuck in some hallway somewhere. I can't talk to anybody. I'm going to die. They're going to have, you know, all these horrible things go through my brain every night. So I'm just like, you know, I'm like, I, I just, I slap the mask on. I don't complain. I don't it's just like, you know, I, um, I, I believe in science. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like the NBA bubble at Rob Sheridan's house, right? Yeah, no, it really is. Except there's no physical activity. <laughs> there's no seven foot guys running around. Up. No, no, no. <laughs> just a lot, of, a lot of snacks and right. being upset. <laughs> um, you'd mentioned that you had gotten your first job after writing a couple specs and, and going around and, and meeting people and things. What was your first job as a writer and how did you actually land it? Well, I, so we would have folks who would come out to the, the, the film center to talk to mm -hmm. it. Canada had, and, and this sort of still true to this day, although not, maybe not as much. There really weren't a lot of Canadian, certainly not a huge history of sitcoms there. Multicams, 
which is what I really was kind of interested in. And as I mentioned, the first specs that I wrote were multicam. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we, we really did not do those shows almost at all. I mean, there'd been a couple of exceptions over the years, but they hadn't really lasted long. There was one in the seventies, but you know, it's a whole, this was something that we used to kind of bang our heads against a lot was sort of, well, why can't we do this? But of course it's all, it's its whole thing. You, you know, you need people who can write it. You need people who can direct it. You need people who can block it, who camera crews who know how to move around and do it. It's all, it's, it's all other animal. But um, the one kind of comedy producer that came out was a producer on a show called the red green show, which in effect was sort of a multicam, although it was a real throwback in a way. There was there was no no fourth wall. It was sort of direct address and Red Green, who was the the the, the, the head the lead of the show, who was a, kind of an older guy with a beard. Very 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 Canadian. This show, um, and he said it was a men's lodge, and guys would come and go, and silly things would happen, and there were almost no women on the show. You could never do this show today. It was it was uh, just a bunch of old white guys for like fifteen years. <laughs> But I, I, and I had no, you know, I knew what the show was. It was certainly not particularly in my vein of humor at the time, but I just thought, well, here's a shot. I got to take that, you know, I got to take this. So I wrote them a couple of specs, short scripts. This, the show was sort of a hybrid of sort of sketch and, and sitcom. And, and um, you know, they were good enough that, that, that they called me in and then I, I just kind of started contributing. Uh, and then they, they had me on staff the next year. And then, so I was sort of off to the races, but I, I guess what I learned, quickly was and I think or at least this was my strength was that I was good at writing to voice I was good at kind of faking read I could read a few scripts of something or watch a show a few times and go I think I get this to an extent I mean you know the same reason they always say well don't don't spec the show that you're sending the script to like you don't spec the Frasier and then send it to the space Frasier showrunner you spec the Frasier so you get on I'll update my references when this is all over but anyway um <laughs> So uh, I, but I, but I felt like I was reasonably okay at it that I could, that I could kind of fake my way through. And I did. And I think that got, I think that got me through a lot of gigs uh, initially and maybe to this day, um, but just kind of being able to, to write to voice because the, 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 the single hardest thing, particularly when you, when you, when you later when you're in a position to hire writers, you could have somebody who's terrifically funny or terrifically inventive or, you know, can they write uh, this, this show, whatever this show is. Um, and I, and, and I've been on the other side of it too. I've been on shows where I thought, oh gee, I should be better at this than I am. And I'm, and I'm not. Um, but you know, there's just voice is such a, it's such a, a specific thing, but I think I was, I was fairly good at kind of faking it. So I did that. And then after that, uh, a number of other uh, shows in Canada, which we can talk about, you mentioned corner gas, um, and, uh, and a pretty good uh, little career. I mean, Canada, you, you don't have a, sort of a base of operations there to quite the extent that you've got, you know, Los Angeles and to some extent, New York. I mean, you're in Toronto, you're in Montreal, you're in Vancouver. I was in Winnipeg, Regina, you know, all over the place. Um, And, but, you know, that was part of the fun of the gig because I was reasonably young and, you know, single and able to just go and be at a, stay at a hotel for three months and, or at a condo or whatever and uh, get per diems and you know i mean this was all pretty great this was all uh fun stuff but i i guess ultimately what happened was and i, and I mean there's a there's a long version and a short version of the story but the short version is i felt like i'd kind of hit a ceiling and i was getting hired a lot on staff i really wanted to develop had developed some but was really running up against a brick wall and feeling frustrated with that 
uh, and uh, feeling like, well, here I am now, I'm nearly 40 in this scenario. And I, and I thought, well, maybe I'll, maybe I should just try going to LA and see what, see what happens. So um, I had an agent that I'm still with actually, who, who as my manager, a Canadian, uh, and he took me down and we met with uh, 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 the, the CAA and UTA and uh, WME, which I, I eventually signed with. And then, uh, and then here for 10 years, but I won't get into all that, but we can talk about whatever you want. But that was basically it. When you got your first job on Red Green, I think you said it was that show. Mm-hmm. Did you have representation at that time? Or is that something you just submitted your material and they liked it and called you? No, actually, and I, I think there's a, there's, uh, no, I, I, it's funny because I had met the guy who later became uh, my agent, a guy named Glenn Coburn out of Toronto. He was with uh, a different, a larger agency at the time. And I had met him at a television conference in Banff. And uh, we had hit it off just talking about some stuff that we had in common and people we knew. And when the red green thing uh, happened, they were going to pay me uh, $300 for a, uh, about a three, like a three page script. And uh, I called him and I said, look, I'm going to, I'm, I, I, I'm going to pretend I have, I want to pretend I have an agent. Uh, would you just uh, pretend to have, be my agent and you'll get your 30 bucks or whatever it was. And so that was my uh, way to get in. I thought, well, I already got a job. So, you know, and hopefully more to come with this. So, so uh, what better way to approach somebody? Um, and I, and I'm sure to this day, there's still something to that. Everybody wants you more when there's, when you've got something going on in that case, it's just a $300 gig, but yeah, you know, that, that was, uh, yeah. So, so no is, is the, is the answer, but, but yes, uh, quickly. And then after that, I was just, we never, we, to this day, we've never, um, we still don't have any paper together. It's just been always kind of a hand. Wow. Uh, before we get into the LA chapter of the Rob Sheridan stories, uh, Canada, I had no idea the Canadian industry was so sort of fragmented, like you had mentioned, like in, in here in the U S it is mostly at least writers rooms and things, LA based or New York based to some degree, although shoots can go around the country, like all the, obviously the Chicago fires and whatever they go off in Chicago and there's different shoots in Atlanta and things like that. But for the most part, the networks, the studios, and most of the writing gets done in Los Angeles and a smaller degree in New York. In Canada, I had always thought it was Toronto and Vancouver, although a lot of U.S. shows shoot in Toronto and Vancouver, so maybe that's why I associated it that way. Yeah. But from what you're saying, is the, the Canadian industry sort of fragmented like that? Like you can get a well, job all over Canada? Well, I, it is fair to say that, that uh, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying. I mean, certainly Vancouver and Toronto remain kind of the hubs. Yeah. But you're, you're, because of the nature of, uh, well, it's the same thing that you see here now with productions going to Atlanta, mm-hmm. you know, tax credits, right? So each uh, province would get more, more aggressive. Um, and depending on the point in time, you know, Saskatchewan, the province of Saskatchewan, where, where we shot two shows, one was... Uh, uh, one was Corner Gas, which I was only on for a year, and then I went over to a show called Little Mosque on the Prairie, which also shot uh, in in Regina or or there thereabouts. So it was a lot of time in Regina, Saskatchewan. I don't want to brag. <laughs> um, 
but but the but tax you just credit, did. <laughs> I did, yeah. yeah. But the tax credits and the and the and the way that the provincial government were at that time making it attractive to production made it made a lot of sense. And then when when some of those incentives went away with a new government, they lost a lot of production in Saskatchewan and a lot of very talented local people, <clears throat> crew and all that. Uh, uh, we're out of work. So it, it, it's a, um, it's a hell of a thing. I, I, there's also in Eastern Canada where I've had very little experience working. Um, there's a whole other, you know, there's a whole other thing there. Uh, but, um, yeah, there's, there, it is, it's, it is spread out, uh, to some extent, but you're not wrong that, that Vancouver and Toronto sort of remain hubs. And then Montreal just by accident, again, some tax credit stuff. I've, I've done a lot of work there because it just for laughs. Um, working on the gala, just working on the gala shows for the uh, uh, during the comedy festival, which is which is super fun and and remains one of my favorite uh, favorite cities. Um, but yeah, a little bit. I mean, it was a, it's a fun kind of adventure. Yeah, I, and Canada is a is a beautiful, uh, wonderful place that looks better every day. <laughs> <laughs> now, Healthcare. is in Canada when you're talking about Saskatchewan or Winnipeg or wherever else you're shooting, that's not Toronto or Vancouver. Is there, and you had mentioned crew, but is there a, a strong infrastructure in a lot of these cities? Meaning are there sound stages, are there equipment rental houses, or do you have to ship a lot of the stuff in and shoot on location? You know, when we were doing corner gas, aside from a couple locations that we would shoot the, the actual gas station for the show, if, you, if, if, if anybody wants to have a look at it, uh, it's, it is, I think still streaming on Amazon prime. Hmm. Uh, and it's a really, really funny show, and I can't take a lot of credit for it. I was only—I came in at season four, did one year. I think it was a great—it was during a great period of the show, uh, and then I kind of followed the showrunner out the door when we went and did Little Moss. Um, but that, you know, we shot that, and I think I'm certain those sounds, those quote-unquote sound stages, were converted something. I think it might have been an old school at some point. But there are, yeah, there are stages now. And yes, there are crews where it, where it starts to get a little dicey is uh, your day players, uh, you know, finding, you know, going through that acting pool, which can be kind of shallow enough that there aren't great actors in every town, but you run through them fairly quickly. And then you're like, oh, my God, we want to use this guy again or whatever. And then at the time, of course, and, and I think particularly now, if you were looking to cast diverse, that became harder, depending on depending on where you were. Um, but Canada's. Canada's a wildly diverse place too. And I mean, we're, even where I grew up in the seventies in Scarborough, it was, it was fairly diverse. So, you know, in most of the hubs, that's not been a problem, but uh, yeah. So it would present its challenges. And then mostly just from a creative standpoint, I think what was fun about it and what is nice about it, and this was true, both of corner gas and little mosque to some extent, but especially gas, cause it was such a fun show. Um, the fact that there was nothing else to do and Regina's not a, not a not a big city. Um, there was a, there was a pub and we, we made good use of it at the time. Um, but we, we mostly just kind of focused on the show. And I remember reading about the show that really made me want to get into comedy and TV and everything, which was uh, second city television, SCTV, right, great show. uh, in the, in the late seventies and early eighties. And they shot, they, the, that show kind of moved around a little bit, but at, at its sort of peak when they were doing the 90 minute shows for NBC, uh, and this, by the way, if anybody doesn't know, is, you know, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, uh, Joe Flaherty, John Candy, uh, Martin Short, uh, all those, uh, those folks, Dave Thomas, 
Rick Moranis, the McKenzie brothers. They did all this stuff in, uh, in Edmonton, Alberta, <clears throat> in the middle of winter. So what the fuck else? It's, pardon me. Well, then what else do you have to do? I mean, you, you, work, you have nothing to do but work on the show. So you'd, you'd be in somebody's uh, condo or hanging out or having a beer, and you're talking about the show. You're writing things. You're coming up with ideas. There's really not that much else to do. And so it was good for... It's good for sort of the creative process, whereas when you're at home uh, and you're and you're working on a show, you know, you're just you're dealing with all the other attendant things of life. So there is something kind of nice about it. I experienced it here a little bit um, not long after I moved here, about two or three years in. Uh, I was I was I was called down to do a show in New York. Uh, so I, we were we were in at Kaufman Astoria for a few months and, and sort of got a little bit of that experience. Although I found New York overwhelming. But that's me. <laughs> And also, not to brag, but your work on Corner Gas, which I thought was interesting. I looked at Corner Gas on IMDb, and it had won like 35 awards, all these comedy awards, just up and yeah. down. And you seem to be the lone writer on that show that won a, an award for Best Drama for the, at the Writers Guild of Canada Awards, which I found quite fascinating. How did that happen? Yeah, not, I, I've forgotten now. Uh, there was a Canadian, there was, I do remember a Canadian comedy award mm-hmm. that, we all, that we all collected. And there was a number for that show. So it's clearly a comedy show. And yet- Oh no, yeah, comedy show. So uh, briefly, and again, I, I recommend people could check it out because of all the things that I did up there, uh-huh. I think it's the one that travels the most and is the most kind of timeless because- it really was kind of Seinfeldian in a way. A, a comedian named Brent Butt, uh, who uh, has, a, besides having a funny comedy name, was a very, very good stand-up comic. And he got together with a guy named Mark Farrell, who uh, uh, was uh, also a, a very seasoned writer and performer in Canada, and some other folks. And they created, it was basically, Brent grew up in a small town, in uh, a very small town in Saskatchewan. And it was just, okay, well, what would my life be like if I never left this small town? And so... It was, uh, I'm working at this little corner gas station. He's got kind of a cantankerous dad and a, and a, was a goofy sidekick and a pretty girl who runs the diner and, you know, all the stuff. And then you know, it's a little show. And the, 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 the stories were always kind of very simple. It was, we never said it was a show about nothing, but that we were always kind of like low stakes stories that were high for the character. You know, Brent used to say, you know, I, if I lose my pencil, if it's my favorite pencil, that means a lot to me. Doesn't necessarily, you know, the world's not going to end, but it is. It is to me. So you can, okay, how do we write a story about a guy losing his pencil? And it was, and it was kind of that. And it was sort of uh, that was a really fun thing to do. And then, um, as for the drama aspect of that that award, by the way, I don't know. I don't remember. I, I, maybe that's maybe that's true. I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was for comedy, but it may have been that they just gave out one award. Uh. <laughs> well, but the previous years before you won for Best Drama for the Writers Guild of Canada Awards, you won for Best Drama, you personally. For the previous years before that, at least it was listed as Best Comedy or Variety Show. And for whatever oh, reason, yeah. in your year, you won for Best Drama. Oh, that's weird. Even though previously they had won for Best was, Comedy. Maybe it was, there were, there were few enough laughs in the script that they thought maybe it was a drama. Perhaps it was some kind of error. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's that's... That's a testament to because some of the great comedies do have episodes where they're not straight comedies. They explore other themes. No, that's true. Yeah. Not this one. I will say the gas never veered into that. There was not never a moment. It really was Seinfeldian in the way that, you know, that old thing about no hugs, no learning. Right. Like there really was a it was very, very unsentimental. Now, 
to take a, you know, so I left that in eight, this was in around 87 or 80, or, or no, no, not 87, uh, 2007. I was just 20 years off. Um, <laughs> and, and then I followed the, 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 the excellent showrunner guy named Paul Mather, who's also a writer and, and is also down here right now. And uh, we went over to a show to do a show called um, Little Mosque on the Prairie, which was starting on the, uh, the, the other network up there, the CBC. And uh, had, had had a first run of shows, about eight episodes that had done very well. And uh, we, uh, but there was a feeling that I think in, in some of the initial response that, you know, maybe the show could be a little funnier, uh, which I would agree with. And then, uh, and so we went over and did that show. We, we, what happened there was we brought that sort of same, and, and I say we, I mean, Paul was sort of leading the charge at the time, but we really brought that same mentality is how do we tell these silly stories in this, in this scenario? So little mosque was based, uh, a very talented young woman named Zarka Nawaz, uh, who was Muslim and who grew up in Western Canada. I kind of wrote this about, uh, you know, what would happen if there's this little, this is actually, there was a mosque in this little town. And so in the premise of the show, they, they had uh, the local Muslims, had uh, had uh, created their own little mosque in the basement of a church, and obviously there was some scuffle about that. But ultimately, it was like, okay, well, you, this is going to be a show. It's going to be a hundred episodes. So how do we, how do you sort of maintain that? Because you can't just always be, oh, what are those Muslims up to? You know, and so you you really had to create just like you would on anything else. It was a show about characters. So our feeling going into that was, well, you could one of the revolution. We thought it would be revolutionary to take inspiration from the subject matter and Zarka and, and some of the other uh, writers of color and Muslim writers who were on the show, you know, we, we were able to kind of find a lot of great material for, for comedy and for drama, but we really wanted to um, just sort of explore these folks as human beings. So I used to say like to take the corner gas example, uh, you know, we, we, you could do an episode about a guy breaking his shoelace. Okay. Oh, now I'm breaking my shoelace. Now what happens? I got to go buy new shoes, but then I go to buy new shoes and something else happens blah, 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 blah. So we, our feeling was, well, we've got our guy and he's on a, you, you start and he's on a prayer mat and he's, and he's, and, and then he gets up and he breaks his shoelace. And I said, well, there, right there, that's a, that's revolutionary because normally, especially at the time, if you were watching 24 or whatever the, the representation of that group was at the time, Guy's on a prayer mat. He's probably going to get up and, you know, bomb somebody or right. do something terrible. Our guy is on a prayer mat. And he's going to get up and then go through exactly the same problems that everybody else is going to do. In that way. So that's how we saw it. Uh, the, the, the network, uh, some of the, 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 the non-writing producers and, and creative folks uh, uh, now lost to time um, disagreed. And I think really thought this was going to be a, a very, very important show. Uh, that was going to bring all the Muslims and Jews and Christians of the world together in harmony and be very saccharine and sentimental if it needed to be and all these just comedy killers. So it was, uh, yeah, it was two long years, but I, I, uh, I, I wound up uh, running the show in the, in the third season. And then uh, not long after that was when I uh, hightailed it down here. So you can do the math there. <laughs> Figure out that last year. What year were you, working on little mosque on the prairie that was in so that was in 2007 2008 so it was a, just a, it wasn't that long after 9-11 right a few years and it got rightfully so 
uh, quite a bit of attention, you know, for the, for its subject matter. And the title was sort of provocative. And Zarka herself was doing, uh, you know, live shots on CNN. And I think even Fox News had her on to, like, you know, take shots at her and be awful. And she did great. And, um, you know, uh, no, there was, it was, a, it was a real, I, you know, but look, the show ran for six years. It made some people some money, made me some money. So, you know, who gives a shit? But it was, it could have been, it could have been more than it was. So that was, right. a, that was a disappointment. It seems like Canada is, we talk about diversity and it seems like Canada is equally as diverse as the U.S., but it seems like Canadians are much more accepting of diversity and it's less divisive than it is down here. I'm not sure if that's the case. It's just from an outsider's perspective, what it seems like, maybe just because I meet a lot of really nice Canadians. I don't know what that, what that, yeah. if that's representative of Canada, because I'm sure there are some backwoods places like there are here in the States that may be less diverse and less open to it but for the most part societally like i can't name a single show with a muslim arabic lead that's like you said not well period but i mean they're always viewed as well skeptical like they're the terrorists or something like that. i can't but, think of shows and this was done what 13 years ago started yeah which is yeah. progressive which it would be progressive if the u.s if on a u.s network that was on right now you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And by the way, I think if I think if if some of the folks who had had ownership of that show had been um, a little bit more wily, uh, there, there there would have been a U.S. version of that show. I think it would have been a format sale. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's true. I mean, I'm always of two minds on the king. You know, we, we talk about this uh, amongst ourselves anyway quite a bit. You know, there was a, there was an excellent Rolling Stones piece in Rolling Stone this week called "The Unraveling of America." I don't know if you saw, mm-hmm. but it was sort of about Trump's response to the pandemic and how we got here, and and you know how misinformation became such a you know all of that stuff. And it was most of it was I thought spot on. Now at the end, he kind of the writer who was writing from Vancouver, and I, I don't know if he was a Canadian or if he's just based there but was talking about some of the fundamental differences between Canadian and American society and how we're, and how in Canada there's this greater feeling of brotherhood. You go to the supermarket, you have something in common with the person in the supermarket because you know, they have a good unionized job. Mm. And so you're in the same relative. Eh, that's bullshit. I mean, there's, there's a huge income disparity. There are huge vast swaths of racism. It was the same thing, you know, when, when, um, Mike, Michael Moore did uh, Bowling for Columbine, if you ever saw that movie. And he went, he went over the border to Windsor and, you know, people started going up to people's porches and so oh, nobody locks their doors in Canada and Canada never has any gun death. Well, you know, of course that's not true. Now, on the gun death thing, you know, we can't compete, uh, you know. But, uh, uh, the, the, but there is a sort of a sense that, uh, we're, we're, we're more tolerant than maybe we are, that we're always smarter than maybe we are. Um, uh, that said, uh, different, yes, a different history. And even where I grew up, when I think about the, the street that I grew up in, in, in the suburbs of Toronto in the 70s, it was not a lily white suburb by any stretch. It was very much, you know, we had we had folks from all over, all, all over the, the block, and it was just something, nor- it was just normal. So I feel very fortunate for that to have grown up in a in a in a place where you really I'm not saying I'm not going to say oh we didn't think about race or that there wasn't racism you know either implied or 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 or, uh, or out in the open there was but it was I think a healthier environment but I always do caution 
there is sort of the sense like, well, we're, we're the kindly sort of, you know, grandmotherly neighbor to the North and everything that we sort of do is, is honey and gold. And of course it's, it's not, we're human beings like anyone else. We're also, I think, um, as, as easily affected by the American culture mm. nearly as much as Americans because we're fed a fairly steady diet of it. Now that's, that is changing and it is improving somewhat. I think even in the days since I, since I was there, you know, it's certainly because of the, since the advent of streaming, not only are there now second windows for, for Canadian shows to maybe get a look down here, right. You know, corner gas, but also you've got, you know, shows like Shit's Creek, mm-hmm. which is, you know, super funny, Great uh, you know, which did, which did the deal with Netflix and, 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 and pop TV. Um, there's been, uh, uh, well, working moms. I know, Catherine uh, 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 Reitman show is, is been making, I mean, there's been, I'm probably forgetting some, but the, uh, obviously orphan black on the drama side, lots of stuff. Murdoch mysteries is a show, uh, there's a Canadian medical drama called uh, Transplant that I think is going to end up on NBC this fall, just be- partly because they need um, uh, material. Oh yeah, but uh, but I, you know, there's a. I think the 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 visibility of some of our work, some of our better work, is at least the visibility is catching up with 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 the work in some cases. Cause in, you know, I think there's been a lot of stuff that's, that's kind of fallen by the wayside that Canadian, that, that, that Americans would never know about. Um, but you know, it's, it's a different country. So <laughs> I had heard that a lot of Canadian productions also get grants from uh, the government arts grants yeah. and stuff like that. Do you think because a lot of productions get grants that affects what goes on the air? Meaning representation being more accessible because of grants as opposed to purely being a profit-based system like in the U.S. So where it's like, oh, well, we can't do Little Mosque on the Prairie because Middle America won't watch it. So we're not going to make money. Whereas they got a grant, maybe it's more feasible. Well, there's an element of that, and not just grants, but also, I mean, the, the, the you know, the, the, the chief or the, or the, the, I guess the biggest broadcaster in Canada is the CBC, which is, which like the BBC is government owned. So, so yes, there is, there is always going to be a mandate there. Um, and it works both ways. You know, there were times when the tail wagged the dog and, you know, there was a mandate to do things that there wasn't necessarily an audience for, but I think as, as the, as the industry matured, as the people working in the industry matured, and as the audience was kind of conditioned, I think that things that sort of improved. But for sure, it changes it changes the dynamic dramatically. Um, and, you know, it can be frustrating working with the CBC sometimes because they are a government organization. There's a lot of, you know, the knock against them was, you know, there was always a lot of levels of bureaucracy there, and they overnoted. It's true. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, they're making TV and there's a lot of good folks there right now as well. They, they, they've, uh, I think that, uh, the, the, the corporation has sort of, uh, matured as years have gone by, but your alternate, you know, and I'm going to, uh, I, I, the, 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 your alternative is uh, CTV, which is owned by Bell Media, which is a private uh, network and CTV was the network that aired Corner Gas and, you know, on the one hand, I think Corner Gas probably had an opportunity to be a funnier, better show on a private network than it would have been on the CBC. Sure. That said, 
how does CTV make most of their money? The vast majority of the money that they make is by simulcasting U.S. network shows. So, uh, or either simulcasting or what they call simultaneous substitution, but it's all the same thing. You're basically taking, you know, uh, okay, so, uh, uh, you know, Modern Family's on, uh, the hell is Modern Family on? ABC? (laughs) Modern Family's on 8 o'clock Wednesday night on ABC. I don't know if that's true. Um, And then, uh, and and so we're going to run it on 8 o'clock on Wednesday night on our network, uh, but we're going to substitute our own ads. So you're actually not watching the signal from whatever, say, the U.S. affiliate would be, and we would get our affiliate stations from from Buffalo. So we'd get CBS, NBC, ABC growing up, and then later Fox out of Buffalo. They would substitute their own signal. So you were, you even if you were on ABC, whatever the 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 the, the, the Buffalo affiliate, the signal you'd be watching was from CTV, the Canadian network, and then they'd substitute. And then this would become an issue around the Super Bowl because it'd be like all the really expensive. U.S. Super Bowl ads would disappear and they'd substitute all their kind of <laughs> shitty Canadian ads and everybody would be like, oh, but the rest of the time, nobody thought about it. But what really happened, what this really meant, what it continues to mean today is that you've got a giant uh, a, a broadcasting entity, and it's not just CTV, but they're the biggest offender, um, who uh, make, as I say, a lot of their money not doing anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, spending, they come down, they would do these big... Uh, kind of dog and pony shows come down for L- come down to LA. They send their execs down in the spring. They wine them and dine them. They open up their wallets, buy a bunch of shows, screen them. And then that's it. And then, you know, they would have to, because there were Canadian content regulations, um, they would sort of have to make something. So corner gas kind of came out of that. It was like, well, we, they tell us we have to spend this $10 million. So, all right, you guys do. And that's, and that's more or less how the show got started. Um, but it's a shitty way to run an industry and it was, it had a lot to do with, uh, with why I came down here. And I, I, you know, as whatever my frustrations were working for the public broadcaster over the years, um, you know, I think pale in comparison to really a, a system, a private system that needs to be vastly overhauled. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's really going to be a place for more Canadian voices, because it's, it's pretty piss poor, uh, even though, you know, there are shows, but there's, there's not enough of them. Right. Before yeah. we jump into um, your L.A. story, mm-hmm. I wanted to touch again just quickly on the diversity issue, because it is something that's very uh, prescient and, and very uh, timely right now. In terms of, we talked about how grants and things may, and, and being a state-run uh, network has influenced probably what goes on and increased the likelihood of, of diverse shows and voices and things like that. A lot of, one of the sayings that's, that's popular now is representation matters. And do you think that the having shows on like little mosque on the prairie uh, affects viewership and in terms of their views on, on, on the individual race the creed religion sexual right. orientation of the individuals or is it is it, in other words the chicken or the egg like is right. it a reflection of society or does it affect society and i'm sure it's some degrees it's both but is it the chicken or the egg does do you think that being as progressive force progressiveness because by the government per se mm-hmm. do you think that that does more for moving that sort of representation ahead or do you think society pulls it behind like representation 
was more prevalent in Canada than in the U.S. Um, in terms of diversity and things like that. And so it's just it, it's a reflection of that on television. I, I think so I got two thoughts. One is, you know, as far as, as far as the viewership goes, let's say you're talking about some, you know, if you go to the oil patch in Canada, you're, you're looking at the same sort of political kind of, it's like Texas. Mm-hmm. If you go to Calgary, I'm going to draw an unfair, you know, too close a correlation. But, you know, politics get a little bit more right wing. Maybe there's a little bit more um, uh, racism or bias, whatever you want to call it. Did did Little Mosque change anybody's mind? Uh, if you if you went in with that mentality, thinking oh, we're just going to show about a bunch of Muslim things, you know, and if that were your attitude, was the show going to change your mind? I don't know, but I will say, during the show, I remember when the show was on uh, a, a right wing uh, sort of ostensibly Christian writer in Canada um, had written uh, had written a number of kind of hateful things about the show about Little Mosque, and had, uh, and he was an old white guy just like me, and he, although I was younger at the time, but he, but he was going on about, it was, there was a, there had been a story in the paper about some awful story about a, a Muslim father who had caught his daughter doing something and cut her hands off, or some ghastly, you know, thing that goes on, but is an outlier, and his thing was, well, I guess I'll, I'll bet we won't be seeing this storyline on, uh, on, uh, on, uh, you know, a little mosque. I bet we won't be hearing about the debt. It's like, no, we won't be fucking hearing about it. Why? Like, it's like, you don't, you know, they don't talk about the, the, you know, uh, Israeli Palestinian uh, peace agreement on Seinfeld or little mm-hmm. Vernon Charlie. It's a little comedy show. You know, we're, 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 it's not up to us to necessarily to, to delve into, you know, uh, those darker elements just because of the nature of the, you know, it's just, it's just absurd. It's a, it's a multi-layered thing. And anyway, I, I, so I, I wrote back to him about this. And one of the things that I said was because the internet was around, but you know, message boards, obviously, I mean, it's the mid two thousands. It wasn't the dark ages, but there was less of it. But I remember reading a comment on some kind of comment thing. And it was from a 15 year old Muslim girl who was growing up, I think in Scarborough, actually near, near where I grew up, which was very, which was, you know, uh, uh, as I say, very diverse and, and more so by that point. And she was talking about a storyline on the show and how her dad did something just like the dad on the show did. And there was a girl on the show who was about 15. And, you know, we did storylines about the dad wanting her, his, his daughter to wear the hijab to school. And then the daughter would get out of the car and the father would go around the corner and she'd take the hijab off. And she said, you know, like I knew people who, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't remember what the, spe- the specificities were that she related to, but she related to it. And that was the, I don't know if I used the, I don't know if the, if those words uh, representation matters were in my brain at the time, but that's the thought that I had, which was, Oh, isn't that nice? Because I knew growing up at seven or eight or nine or 10 years old. And what I was watching happy days or you know, whatever my favorite shows were, it was all I saw was myself reflected back at me all the time, everywhere, right? Every single show, drama, comedy, it was white, 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 white. So, you know, it was white teenagers, white kids, white adults, you, 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 you could, you know, that was sort of the beauty of television was that you could see yourself reflected back that you made you feel less alone in the world. Mm. And then to realize I think out of that period, especially, oh my God, of course, <laughs> of course you need that. 
for everybody. Everybody deserves to see themselves represented on TV. Not because it's politically correct, not because it's the right thing to do, not for any, you know, reason you could just because it just makes sense. It makes, first of all, it makes economic sense. If you're, if you're, if you're a creator or a producer and you want something to appeal to, to, you know, wide variety of people or you want a narrow cast, but it's also just, isn't that the beauty of the thing is like, that's what's so TV was a magical thing to me when I was a kid. I, I found reality and I still find reality kind of stressful. <laughs> I had stress, there was stress in the home growing up. My dad was sick. Not, no, nobody's, nobody's fault, but just, uh, you know, and I, and TV was such a centering grounding influence for me. So I, I would never come down on the other side of the diversity argument or the representation argument because God damn it. We had, we had, you know, first of all, if you want to see, if you're white, and you want to see yourself on TV, you'll never run out of stuff. I mean, just all the stuff that already exists. The Andy Griffith show will always be there. And I love the Andy Griffith show, but it's a stupid, yeah, but it, it always seemed a, a really stupid position to take that somehow that's not a, a good idea to, to have different voices, both in the room and, in, and on the screen. Um, because of course, it's just common sense at this point. It's just insane. Um, so yeah, anyway, that was a long answer to a short question, right? But I had, I, I guess my feeling was it's not, I don't think that representation ever changed anybody's mind who was going to, whose mind was made up going in. And I don't think any one show ever changed the world, but I think for the folks that it meant to whom it meant something, uh, it, it meant something. And that's, and those are the people you're trying to reach. Like, if there's some old redneck who doesn't, who, who thinks Little Mosque on the Prairie is a, an offensive idea for a show, well, you know, fuck that guy. I mean, I, you know, I don't, he doesn't get a seat at my table anyway. So I, I'd rather just, uh, um, you know, go forward and do it. Now, most of the stuff I've done isn't Little Mosque. Most of the stuff I've done. Oh, sure. Fairly, sure. Fairly down the road, down the middle. But, but talking about uh, making a difference and not necessarily impacting you know, majority of the oil workers out in Saskatchewan or wherever, if it makes even a small incremental change in certain people's viewpoints, that could be generational, that could affect a multitude of people further on down the line. For example, if somebody becomes more comfortable around Muslims because they enjoyed the show, even if they they prefer preferred the company of not Muslims <laughs> uh, if it affects their viewpoint even just slightly which I think temp- so you know. I mean I I was set when I was 17 or 18 um and I was one of those sort of white suburban kids who really right. got into hip-hop and I was really into public right. enemy WA and all that stuff and I you know I'm sure I felt and looked like a poser I mean not that I wasn't really dressing up you know and I wasn't putting on baggy jeans or anything but I was just like I really liked the music and 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 Public Enemy um was my first kind of woke moment such as it was you know it was like oh my god like what you know these things that were saying you know I had no sense even then when you put on no matter how open-minded or, or, or smart you thought you were, if it's 1988, you know, when that NWA album came out, you knew it was a fucking banger, but you didn't, I think that to a person, I'm sure most of us thought, oh, but it's an exaggeration, mm-hmm. you know, oh, well, I'm sure it's not that bad, you know, 
of course, now we know, well, no, it wasn't an exaggeration at all. It was exactly the reality that was that was on the street. But at least it kind of introduced those ideas in, in, into my teenage brain so that by the time, you know, you look at what's going on now you know, in terms of policing issues and all those things, I mean, those are things that at the very least, if I wasn't talking about them or fully grasping them, I was at least hearing about them mm-hmm. 30 years ago. Right. So, you know, and that was at a time when there was a lot of pushback from... I think, uh, you know, you, the, the, if you remember, um, you know, Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife was, was starting the, the Parents Music Resource Center at the time when they started putting the explicit lyrics, a uh, 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 little sticker on all, on all the albums. And basically there was like kind of a panic, like what are we going to do? This kind of this black music is starting to make its way into the suburbs. It's going gonna, it's gonna, to, you know. Uh, Destroy society as we know it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Like, you know, like somehow Aerosmith was going to be better than, you know, whatever. So, um, no, all of those things I think are good. Uh, anything that, that, that brings more culture, more voices, more everything in is good. I mean, um, you know, Jesus, what else? What are we here for? I mean, you know, it's, we don't have that much time. I'd rather, uh, yeah, I want to know what other people are going through. It uh, doesn't mean I can't still disagree with them or they sure. have to like everything they say, but it's, it's, uh, you know, so, so no, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm pro it now, you know, it, look, it's, it, uh, this is a conversation that everybody has a lot right now when you, when you're talking about writers rooms, um, you know, look, I'm a 50 year old white guy uh, has, has the, has the math changed a little bit for a guy like me? Maybe. I mean, especially here because I didn't come up in the room. So I, I don't have the relationships going back 25 years. Um, so it's, you know, it's always been, I've always had to hustle just a little bit more even to get in a, in, get in a room because it's, I'm coming in late. You know, I wasn't somebody that everybody knew as a story editor or as a staff writer. Cause I, I was a story editor and a staff writer in Canada. Right. Um, so, you know, does it, does it, is it, does it, is it, an, is it maybe a new challenge sometimes when you're they're thinking, okay, well, we've got all the white, we have all the white guys we need for this room. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But I don't really, I mean, it's a reality, but it, it's not something I particularly begrudge because yeah, the fact is if, if, if you have, yeah, the more, the more kind of people you have in the room, the better that show's going to be. It just is. It just is. It's just, it's just common sense. Like you need to have different points of view. Um, for something to feel like it takes place in a real world because a lot of TV didn't and doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, uh, you know, authenticity is an overused word, but it, you know, it means something. Right. So, um, so yeah. Uh, now jumping to Los Angeles, making your move from Canada to LA and you said your, your uh, manager or agent from Canada came with you. Well, he brought me down. Yeah, he kind of he 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 had he he had developed a lot of relationships down here, so he was able to get me. And I had I had a, you know, I had done quite a few things at that point, and I and I had I had risen to the level of uh, you know co co EP or whatever. So it was an attractive enough, I think, offer for some to for people to go. Okay, we don't have to break this guy in. He's a seasoned enough writer. Anyway, we were able to get. In front of uh, yeah, UTA and CAA, and uh, I think pair all the all the big ones, and we signed with W WME, and I had a great uh, agent there, Dave Stone, for years, and then of course up until last spring, right, when the, when the Writers Guild had their uh, had their split. But uh, but I still I still have my uh, my manager based out of Toronto, and then um, 
we'll see by the end of this year what the what the sort of agency situation looks like um, as as that as the dust starts to settle on that a little bit. Yeah, well, with UTA and ICM signing and that yeah. triggering their clause, because I guess two agencies had to sign in order to make either one effective. Because apparently, right. yes, but now that they are and they can represent writers again, you got to think that one of two things is going to happen. Either WME and or CAA, if not both, will either change their business model and become some sort of hybrid management production company deals or sign the agreement and just say, you know what, we can't win this battle. UTA and ICM are going to take all the clients and we just have to, to move rather than just continue to bleed money. Yeah. I don't know what, I don't know what WME will do. I really don't. I mean, I mean, my, 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 I know that it was already was in deadline last week. I mean, my agent's already left him to, to start his own management company. So, uh, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, yeah, the, the, that part of it, I, you know, all I've been able to do during lockdown and not being staffed right now is to generate as much as I can when I'm not hiding under a blanket crying. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, I'm working on a new spec that I'm super excited about. And I'm feeling a little bit of a creative rebirth, just having, having, uh, the time and energy to sort of, um, look at what it is I wanted to do. But I was, you know, around the time that this started and all the stuff, and when things really kind of started to fall apart a little bit last year with the agencies and everything, you know, it hit a lot of us hard, particularly writers of a, of, you know, a certain stage in your career. So um, it's, it's, it's kind of forced me into a little bit of a rethink on stuff, but not in a bad way. Cause I think I'm, I feel as though if if I've got another 10 or if I'm lucky enough to get another 10 or 15 years out of my career, um, I'm going to want to do different stuff anyway. Mm. So, uh, and I can, yeah, anyway, we can talk about that. Ask me something specific or I'll ramble. So for <laughs> you came up, your career started in Canada. So you came up in, in Canadian television world, but you've also worked in uh, TV, obviously in the, the States as well. And having seen that whole side of the business, would you recommend for writers, either Canadian based, but, you know, we'll generalize and say not in the States, like maybe they come in Australia or in the UK or whatever, would your recommendation be to work their way up in their own country first and then try to use that position to come to the States to to start? Or like you said, you didn't come up here, so you have fewer contacts because you weren't a story editor and you weren't a staff writer here in the States and you came in as a, a, a mid or upper level. And so there are drawbacks to that as well. What would you suggest? There, there, no, there are drawbacks to that for sure. And it became, and has been, it's always been challenging because you're coming in at a reasonably high level mm-hmm. and yeah, those jobs tend to go to the folks who've been working with the showrunner maybe on and off or they've known them since they were on friends together or whatever, you know, it's like you, 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 for a while, you know, you couldn't throw a rock down the street without hitting a, a friends writer who, who had scattered to the wind and was on somewhere, you know, I wasn't on friends. So I wasn't even on suddenly Susan. So, you know, there's no, there's no, uh, that part of his heart. I think if I had had my, if I'd had, you know, my citizenship, if I'd had a green card, if I, I have a green card now, I don't see <clears throat> If any of those things had come to me earlier in life, I probably would have come down here earlier. <clears throat> Excuse me. But that said, you know, who knows? I, I have no idea what 
what my success rate might have been if I if I if I had been able to come down here at 24, 25. Frankly, I think I was a better writer at 30 uh, than I would have been at that age. I, I I look back on the scripts that I wrote when I was in university, and they weren't really very good. Um, I think you know, working a few years, I, I mentioned the the theater company that uh, that went uh, that went bankrupt. Uh, you know, I was living a little bit. There was a little bit of, you know, just the old cliche of life experience. There was just a sense of, okay, from the age of 25 to 30, you really kind of become the person that you're going to become and your point of view is becoming sharpened and your, your ideas and what you like and what you don't like. And so I, you know, even though I, I'll sometimes look at the writer's assistant in a room here, you know, right out of school, 22, 23, and think, oh gosh, I wish I had, I, I, I wish I could have had that path uh, and had all that time in front of me. You know, I don't know. I mean, A, I didn't, so who, get, who cares? But also I just think, um, I don't know. I, I, I think I, it all came to me <clears throat> at the time that it should have come. And, 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 and coming down here was never, excuse me, it was never like a, a, a foregone conclusion. Mm. Uh, I loved Canada. I still love Canada. I will likely return there at some point, uh, maybe sooner than later, as I say, depending on what happens. But um, it's, uh, no, it was, a, it was a, you know, I would never, it's not just a launching pad. A lot of people have, have, have and continue to have a very full careers uh, in Canada. And as far as somebody, <clears throat> to answer your question, like for, from Australia or UK, it's hard without having a, a clear eye on, on, on what the industries, what those industries are mm-hmm. like. But I, I suspect, you know, for the most part, if, if you're able to have a career um, and it's fulfilling to you, there's nothing that, that, that being in L.A. or being part of the U.S. system is going to give you that you're not going to get there. Um, but I think like you had said, there, there's a prevalence of U.S. Uh, entertainment you know, shows and, and films that 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 come into other countries canada and uk and australia so uh, i think a, a lot of of you know people from these countries different countries uh feel close to the material they feel close to hollywood so to speak and that seems to be yeah. sort of the, sort of the uh the goal and i think that because it is an international uh and it, it's it's it reaches more places rather than you know the occasional british show will come to the u.s occasional canadian show like you had mentioned Shit's creek which is a great show comes to the u.s mm-hmm. but for the most part we don't see a majority of canadian shows here in the states whereas a lot of u.s shows reach and i think that's what i think appeals to a lot of of newer younger creators writers but what i what what it's sort of asking is when you're starting your career in canada or in the uk and I'm sure it's never easy. This, whether you're in Australia or Canada or wherever, trying to break into the entertainment business is a challenge because so many people want to do it. Mm-hmm. But I think trying to get your first shot maybe in Canada may be slightly easier at the start than in Los Angeles or New York because there's so many more people trying to break in, not just here in the States, but people coming from around the world but like you said, you think that, oh, well, I can get in a little bit easier, maybe if I were in the UK or in Australia. 
And that yeah, could yeah. springboard me into success in the US because maybe I'll be a big shot here in Australia. Yeah. So now I'm going to go to the US and I'll be a big shot. And it doesn't necessarily work that way because like you had said, you didn't start off at the lower levels, working your way, building those no. relationships early on. So even though it's harder to start, once you're, it, once you're able to get in, if you're able to get in, it may help you later on in your career. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly like sort of a big fish, small pond kind of thing. I mean, for sure. And you come here and you, it's very easy to sort of feel uh, out of your element. And I was fortunate enough to get staffed uh, pretty quickly uh, at uh, the first, I think you mentioned the show all the time. It was a show called Mad Love. Mm -hmm. It lasted for a a whopping uh, 13 episodes on uh, CBS in, uh, I guess, 2011. but yeah, no, it was like a, you know, it was a, it was run by a guy, a guy named Matt Tarsus, uh, who, uh, came from, you know, talk about a show business family. His sister was Jamie is Jamie Tarsus, mm-hmm. who, uh, has been around forever and even run ABC at one point. His dad was, um, Jay Tarsus, who uh, was, uh, who, uh, with his writing partner were on uh, the Bob Newhart show. And to me, you know, just meeting folks who came from that background, came from show business backgrounds, was both exciting and and sort of uh, intimidating. Because, you know, I don't know, I just in my brain, it was like, oh my gosh, these people are the real deal and I'm a phony. Any, if, I don't know, if anybody's happy wherever they are, stay there. <laughs> that's my feeling if you're happy don't change right anything. <laughs> yeah no i mean my question was really it's not there's no definitive answer because as we say yeah. a lot, there's a, everyone's path is different and you can't predict the future and so somebody may come at the start of their career here and struggle and not be able to make it because it is tougher to break in and they may have had great yeah. success in their home market some people may have great success in their home market and want to stay there. Some may want to move and be able, yeah. like yourself, to be able to make that transition and be successful in both countries. But it's not easy no matter how you cut it. It's just interesting to hear your perspective. And, and Well, but it is hard. And I think that you're right to the extent that it is hard to sort of resist the siren song mm. of, of U.S., of, you know, of American, big time American entertainment. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, that's because you're right. No matter where you are in the world, chances are you grew up on something. You know, for me, it was, as I said, you know, whatever my, you know, it was all Mary Tyler Moore and Bob Newhart and all these uh, shows that I was watching primarily in reruns. I wasn't that old, but I, you know, (laughs) I was pretty little when they were on, but I, you know, or Cheers, Cheers was really the show to me when I was sort of coming of age where it was like, oh, this is, this is to me. And to this day, I think still sort of the sort of pluperfect kind of example of 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 kind of, of what a, of a, of a just a a really funny ensemble multicam show um but the yeah no the allure of it for me was enormous <clears throat> but also that's partly because i'm just kind of a show business junkie and 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 i loved old movies and i loved old tv and i i, I knew everything about everything i could know um, about Hollywood and Hollywood history coming down here. And I, I still haven't lost that even more so than ever any of the work I've done or being in a room or anybody. I, you know, I, I never have quite lost the excitement that I feel when I'm on a, on a soundstage here, you know, when we were doing uh, two broke girls, I, I, I did a year on that. 
over at Warner Brothers, you know, the most exciting thing to me was just getting, you know, walking onto that stage and there'd be a plaque outside and you'd be like, Jesus Christ, they shot, you know, a star is born here mm-hmm. or, you know, with Judy Garland, not with Right, right, right. Yeah. No, you always you think about <clears throat> all these people who had kind of come and gone and it was just tremendously, uh, it still is to me. I still, I still get a kick out of it. Um, well, that was a big, that was a big part of the allure for me. Um, but yeah, you know, I, as I say, had, had things gone slightly differently if I had been maybe more satisfied at that point in my career or, or, or bigger, a bigger opportunity had presented itself. And Lord knows there were a couple shows that I really had my heart, had poured my heart into development wise there that hadn't come to fruition. It was extremely frustrating. But, you know, if one of those things had gone or something else, or whatever, I mean, I, I might never have, uh, I might never have come here. Mm. Um, but, uh, but no, it's, you know, come on, it's LA, Hollywood, it's exciting. It's, it is, it's neat when it's not on fire or. <laughs> yeah, literally you know, and figuratively. Or whatever it is we're going through now. Right. Um, for, you've been in a lot of writers rooms on various different shows for for those aspiring or emerging tv writers out there what are the skills that you've developed or learned that you found are most valuable in the writers room hmm. obviously other than hopefully being a good writer yeah you know um what i think the thing i'll tell you what i struggled with the most because and again, this may just be sort of the big fish, small pond element of it. And, and, and also because the budgets were lower in Canada, considerably lower, the rooms were smaller. Mm. So you'd have, you know, you might have, especially working on comedy, you might have three, four, five people in the room, six tops. You come into a room, you know, there's 12 people, 12, 14 people around a room. Excuse me, not only are you in you know you, you you just you're competing in a bigger pool but it's moving that much faster and also these folks have been doing this for and, and things would move very 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 quickly and uh you know in punch up or whatever it is that you're doing particularly in comedy obviously that need to kind of always be present always be right on top and as you mentioned <clears throat> you're, you're you know you're talking to people like morgan murphy who were in that room who's a, con- who's a stand-up comedian um it's always, you know, it's usually one or a couple of stand-up or, uh, or people who are just writers. Pat Walsh was in that room. who's was one of the funniest guys I've ever met. Uh, you know, really playing hardball. And, and for me, uh, one of the pleasures of, of writing has always been, how can I sit here and work on this joke for an hour until I think it's great? <laughs> and maybe, <clears throat> maybe that's because I'm not a stand-up. I don't come from an improv background. Maybe I'm just not funny enough. I don't know. But I know I, I, know I can be funny in I still like to take my time with it. I always felt it was very easy to <clears throat> get uh lost in that sort of comedy um thunderdome. <laughs> and that's the part of it I've never really loved. I mean, there's that, that when you get around that sort of comic energy and people are sort of uh you know one upping each other or do you know I always I always find that very uh uh, kind of uh, stressful. I've always just sort of liked uh, 
I don't know. I, to me, it's, 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 uh, anyway, to answer, to answer your question, what's the, what was your question? <laughs> it was something about what have I learned? No, yeah. It was, what are the, the skills that you've learned through working in a number of TV writers right. that, that you well, found most I valuable? Be I learned I had to be better on my feet hmm. and, uh, and, and, um, and, and also, yeah, just, just engaged. And I think, Gosh, I don't know. I mean, hopefully um, just kind of keeping your eyes and ears open and and shutting up when necessary, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't know if I've always succeeded at that. I think there were times when I probably not, 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 not talking too much, like complaining or being whatever, but just, I don't, I don't know. I, 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 sometimes I wonder if, uh, uh, there isn't something to be said for just kind of, taking a back seat and sort of taking, taking things in and, you know, rather than, I don't know. It was very hard. Cause I, when I came in, it was, it was a sense that, Oh my God, I'm, I'm coming down here at a senior uh, <clears throat> level. People are going to have expectations of me. What if I can't deliver? What if I, you know, all that just kind of fear. Um, the I, Maybe that's the biggest lesson is just um, try and shut your brain off mm. and just do the best work you can do. I don't know. It's easy to be neurotic, you know. And this is uh, sort of the final question that I have, and I'm, it's the easiest one, is what makes good comedy? Oh, yeah, that's the easiest. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I'm running a spec right now. So I, I, uh, we had a little technical snafu off the top, and I can't remember what was included or what wasn't, but... I went through a real period really fairly recently after after I got divorced my my marriage ended around the same time Trump got elected in the fall of 2016 and everything just kind of went went to hell one right one thing after another I had a couple of dogs and my dogs were both ill and my one dog died and then the other dog died and then a friend of mine died and Trump's tearing the country apart and I'm lonely and losing money and I'm not working and I'm, you know, everything's just going to shit. And I thought, uh, how am I ever going to be funny again? I got to write something to get out of this, you know, and I don't know what that is. And, uh, and trying to constantly second guess what the market might want, what other people might want. Is this in, is this popular? Maybe I, you know, and until really fairly, uh, you know, and I, I <coughs> got little bits of work here and there, but until recently, and I, I started, and I'm not going to get into pitching what it is that I'm writing right now, but it's a sort of a, a light one hour, but it's right in sort of the pocket of everything that's interesting to me. Mm. And and that's all I can do. And I, and it seems funny to me. Um, and when, and, and there are times when I'm writing it and I'll, I'll write something and I'll sort of, I'll, I'll laugh, which is, you know, not cause I'm constantly laughing at things that I write, but I think I just, I, the way that I'm picturing this is very funny to me. And I don't know what else to do other than that now. You know what I mean? Like I can't, you know, in terms of trying to dissect what's going to work or what's not going to work, the only thing I can do is, is it funny to me? And if it's, and if it seems kind of bullshitty on the page, like I'm trying to get away with something or I know this isn't really kind of funny or it's kind of hacky, but it'll pass or it'll, but you know, um, I think you just kind of have to, if you're really making yourself laugh, 
uh, then you can't really go too far wrong. Or maybe you can, you'll get fired. But, <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, all you can do is, <clears throat> you know, I, I mean, really, I'm, I'm, I'm just laboring to say the most obvious thing, which is sort of follow your bliss or whatever. But I mean, I really feel like the only way it's going to be, you know, you're, you're going to be miserable a lot of the time anyway. You may as well enjoy doing whatever it is you're, you're, you're doing. Otherwise, why, why don't I, I, the, the one thing that I've kind of come to, especially in the last few years, is for me, it's almost always process over product now. Am I having fun? Whether, whether I'm writing the thing by myself, whether I'm staffed in a room, whether I'm developing with other people, is it fun? Do I like them? Do I like this project? Is this fun? So much more important than is this going to be the Emmy award winning, you know, highbrow show on HBO or, you know, whatever. Um, you know, Two Broke Girls was not a show that I, you know, maybe this is why I didn't last long on the show. It wasn't a show that I loved going in. It wasn't necessarily my my particular pocket of funny. Uh, uh, pocket of funny, is that right? Bucket of funny? Cup of funny? I don't know. <laughs> but I learned a lot. And <clears throat> I also realized that in the room, there were things that weren't awesome about that show, but we won't get into that. But the, the, the in the room, being around funny people, having fun, having a laugh, was so much more important to me than, oh, is this show going to win an Emmy or does anybody, you know, I don't think anybody's going to mistake two broke girls for Oscar Wilde. Who gives a shit? I mean, it was, you got to get, you're the one who has to get up and be in the room for 10 hours mm. a day. So it really is just kind of, I, I've given up any pretense to making important work or doing, it's just like, is it, can I be happy? Because it's, it's, it's hard to be happy no matter who you are, no matter what you're doing for a living. Uh, but it, it can be particularly hard, hard to be happy. Um, in show business. And I think there's a, there are enough, uh, it's littered with enough, uh, broken marriages and <laughs> drug addicts and alcoholics to, 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 you know, prove that point. Right. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I, there is no, obviously there's no, there's no way to guarantee that something's funny, but if you can do, yeah, I don't know. Doing work that seems meaningful or pleasurable or fun or funny to you is, I don't, I don't know. I just, if you can't do that, I don't know what the point is, you know. Um, I'd rather do something else, but I can't do anything else because I don't have any other talents. <laughs> so there we are. So here we are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on that note, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I feel like, I feel as though I've done I've answered nothing and that nobody's going to get anything out of this whatsoever. You don't have to put that in the description, but. Oh, absolutely. That sounds like a perfect description. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, and and you're going to stick around for a few minutes for the unscripted after show. Absolutely. Perfect. Um, So be sure to stick around for a few minutes for the unscripted after show on Patreon and be sure to follow Rob on Twitter. It's at Robert D Sheridan. Right? Did I get that right? At Robert D. Uh, yes, 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 I do. I'll be I'll be yelling a lot between now and November. And if you, every now and again, you're funny too. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. This was fun. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>